0: You're listening to the CyberWire Network, powered by N2K. Welcome to Cyber CEOs Decoded, where we speak to the CEOs from established security giants to up and coming disruptors, getting the inside track on what makes a cybersecurity company tick. I'm your host, Mark Vanzadloff, the CEO of Devo. And today, my guest is Peter Bauer, a well known entrepreneur in the community and co founder and CEO of Mindcast. Peter, welcome to the show. Thanks, Mark.
1: Thanks for having me along today.
0: So, Peter, you're the CEO of Mindcast, which is an amazing company that's gone through uh, a long, I mean, you've been doing it for 20 years, uh, building out the company, getting it to IPO, and going through private equity. And today, I'm very excited about this conversation because you're a fascinating person, and I knew that, but as we were preparing for this, you only got more interesting. So um, I'm going to go back first to where your roots are, how you grew up, and then we're going to take it all the way through your your career and some lessons that that building out a company like this and the things you did before you got to Mindcast uh, can, can teach the rest of us. So looking forward to this, and I'm going to start off with uh, where are you from? Where'd you grow up?
1: Well, I think you make an assumption that I uh, grew up, but um, let's let's stick with that one for now. Yeah, <laughs> it's, look, um, I I am originally South African. I think, as you as you know, um, and I was born in a in a little village um, in the eastern Cape of South Africa. And at the time, the population was about two thousand people. And my dad was a high school teacher, and uh, we were, I was born there, and then we moved uh, to Port Elizabeth, and then I. I mainly grew up in Cape Town, which is a beautiful city. If, uh, if any of your listeners have, have not yet been
0: there, put it on the bucket list. It's on my bucket list. I've not been there myself. Um, and friends of ours have a, have a place in South Africa near one of the parks, and I have a longstanding invitation to go down. So I, I really want to do it. What was it like growing up? Did you grow up in a, a regular household? Uh, your dad was a high school teacher, you said?
1: Yeah, my dad was. I mean, some of these formative things. I mean, he, he's an educator um, and, a, and an educational psychologist, and so I think that that spirit of teaching, that spirit of learning, uh, you know, really uh, was was quite formative for me. Um, tragically, my mom was killed in a car accident when I was about eleven years old, um, along with her mom, and so that was a that was a pretty seismic event in, in our lives as a family. And then my dad raised my brother and, and sister and I uh, as a single parent for uh, the majority of our teenage years and, and beyond. Yeah, it's, it's
0: incredible. You and I talked about this the other day for the first time. I didn't know that, but and I still have had the long weekend uh, or a few th- days to prepare for what to say to that. But uh, I'm still not quite sure what to say about that. But I have to imagine both your parents must have had an amazing impact on on your life going forward, both having been, you know, when they were alive and, and beyond.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. You know, I some time to think about it. Um, and there was a point when we'd founded Mimecast that my co-founder also lost his, uh, lo- lost a parent as a teenager, lost his dad. Our CFO, so our, our entire senior management team were what, what we'd fondly call members of the Dead Parents Society. Um, so <laughs> my, my CFO, his, uh, his mom was killed in a car accident uh, when he was a child. And our head of sales, uh, his mom um, had died um, unfortunately by suicide, Uh, and so we had these four, the four of us leading the company in the very early stage, and we all had this in common. It was quite, it was quite interesting just to see maybe how it affected how we thought about what you take for granted, and you know what you perceive as as being things that can change quite quickly and be seismic in your lives, and, and what you take for granted, what you don't. So. I think it affected how we thought about risk and work and each other in, in quite a profound way. Amazing, amazing.
0: Okay, well, we could spend more time on that. And I, uh, the, the Dead Parent Society sounds like a, a very interesting group that no one aspires to join, but uh, but from from dark things come, come great light sometimes. How about first paid job uh, growing up? Did you ever have, uh, what was your first meaningful paid job? Yeah, so
1: I mean, I I did some of the regular stuff like working in a in a restaurant as a as a runner when I was 16 years old. That was that was a lot of fun. I actually really enjoyed waiting tables. It's like one of the few jobs where you sort of finish the end of your shift and you can pack it all up. You don't have to think about it again until you walk back in um, at the start. So those were good experiences. And I think also you learn something about about interacting with people because you you start off life as a waiter and you're quite different. Um, and as I developed my confidence, um, I. I sort of developed this attitude of this is my table they're at my table it's not their table it's my table and they're my guests at this table and I'm here to make sure they have a absolutely fantastic time and it set a i think quite a nice power balance which enabled me and empowered me to do a great job but also kept you know customers that were perhaps not nice people or bullies or entitled or rude or anything it also allowed me to keep them um in check in a constructive way so some some early lessons waiting tables and, and the uh the hustle and bustle of
0: yeah and that, that idea of overcoming that confidence gap that you have when you when you start a job the imposter syndrome or whatever to like repositioning and reframing your your role there and and, and that's empowering
1: yeah yeah absolutely my first tech job was when i wanted to get into it um and i i got offered a job as a, a systems engineer a support techie basically um for a small system integrator, and they posted me at the South African breweries, which, you know, I, I will tell you, if you ever get offered, it doesn't matter what job it is, if you get offered a job at a brewery, um, I would, like, just take it, grab it with both hands. It's a fascinating place to work, besides the fact that they periodically pay you in beer. Yeah. The environment I worked at was the combination of a corporate office and a brewery, which, yeah. uh, you know, fascinating. And, and so that was really formative, because I learned, I learned there this real intersection between IT and and business and how it came together. Even if I was just changing toner cartridges, I got to be in lots of places that um, conversations were happening that I was listening out
0: for. I read a stat recently that one out of two people who start their careers in breweries end their careers at the same brewery. (laughs) (laughs) That that sounds like an awesome place to start. So did you end up going to university, Peter?
1: I did not. I liked learning, but I didn't like the classroom style of learning. I, I struggled with that. And so I made a decision when I was in high school that I wasn't going to, you know, after 12 years of school, I wasn't going to go sit in a classroom for another four years. And I, I really wanted to be in business. And I wanted to learn how to build companies. And I figured, you know, probably the best way to learn the craft of building a company is to build a company. So I did sign up for some business classes, like a diploma and some marketing and, and so on. And and really sought opportunity to start creating something. And about six months into the year, I I met somebody who had a a good idea for a business or an idea for a business. Um, It was a distribution company supplying schools with all sorts of things. Um, And we set up this little company and I ran it out of his garage and eventually quit my classes at the end of that year. It was sort of half day. I'd, I'd go to the classes in the morning and work in the afternoon. But I thought, let me do this full time. And And so I skipped that education and built that company. And and ultimately, you know, that set me on an entrepreneurial path that has been,
0: you know, I I think suited me quite well. Amazing. And why business? I mean, I I always think that I went into business because my father and to a degree, my mom was an executive assistant and my dad was kind of a business guy. Um, so that was my inspiration, I suppose. But your dad was a high school teacher. So why business? Why not go into education or something, you know, follow, follow the family business?
1: Yeah, I mean, the one thing I was fortunate in was I always got to go to great schools. And, and you know, maybe I, unfairly, so apartheid uh, South Africa provided opportunities for, for the, the white population to have, you know, the lion's share of opportunity in the country. And so I, I went to a really, really good, good high school. Um, but, but I was one of the least affluent people there because, uh, you know, a school teacher or educational psychologist working for the government salary isn't, isn't rich. I got to spend time with lots of people who had a lot more than us. And, you know, I was interested in solving that problem. And I noticed that the, the kids whose parents own businesses, like, seem to have more Freedom and like I liked the idea. Like it felt like a leadership thing to run a business, own a business, and I got exposed to some entrepreneurship sort of concepts early on. I was like, maybe this is a shortcut somewhere. Let let's get into that. So I I really was interested in it and and learned just enough to be dangerous, and then ran ran with it from there.
0: And you got into tech after your after founding your first company, uh, that was not in the tech space. It was a, a kind of a school supplies, uh, I think, in, in that area. And then after that, tell us about how you got into actually the tech space.
1: Well, my partnership with my school supplies guy sort of broke down a little bit. He was an older guy. And I, you know, I was, frankly, running the business. He had a few other interests. And 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 we, we stopped seeing eye to eye at a point. And I, frankly, you know, in retrospect, I think his wife had got laid off and he wanted her to run the company. So I was sort of edged out. And, and so I, I learned it was pretty bumpy for me at the time. I didn't quite know what to do. I was kind of shopped elbowed out of a business that I'd really built and ran with, with his help, but I was, you know, 80% of the sweat. So I took the, the small amount of money that, that he had me to go away. Um, and I went traveling around the States and uh, the UK and the States. And in my travels, you know, I was picking up, I was trying to think, okay, what's my next opportunity? What do I do? And I, I was, saw these magazine talking about the next big thing, internet. I was going between cities and I'd read all about this internet stuff. And I thought, okay, maybe this is. So when I get back to South Africa, I need to learn this. I need to study this. So I came back, I signed up for these Microsoft certified system engineer classes. I hadn't known a great deal about, about tech. We'd had a, a uh, one of those early BBC microcomputers as as kids. Uh, but this this thing kind of captured me and I, and I was interested in, you know, what it could mean for business and 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 that got me into tech. And I figured if I want to start my own business, I need to go work for a tech company to understand how it works. I can't just head out there and, and, and make it up. Um, so that's why I worked for that small system integrator and for about 18 months before breaking away and, co-founding my own, my own tech company, which was my, my company prior to Mimecast, you know, I, I, I was a sponge in, in another environment, learning everything I could and, and then setting up on my own with a friend.
0: I have to imagine you thought very carefully about who controls shares and decision-making after your first experience where you were, as you said, elbowed out.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, there were some painful lessons learned there. Um, the, my second tech company... I was going in with, with a friend and we didn't raise any outside capital. So that kept it pretty tightly held amongst us. And then we sold that company to a public company in 1998, end of 98. So for the duration of 1999, we were in an, an earn-out phase. I mean, obviously, an amazing time to sell a tech company because everything was deemed to be worth far more than it actually was. But we worked extremely hard and that that provided me with more experience and also ultimately some more capital. So when I left that firm in, in 2002, I could use many of those lessons then in, in the founding of Mimecast. And, and, and I think that's really where some of the structural and kind of control pieces, uh, that I'd been burnt with in, in the first business really came into
0: play. Amazing. Um, so you're done with that. You're done with ADN in your, in your retention period there. And, uh, uh, maybe l- let's get into Mimecast because that's the y- you end up at Mimecast for the last 20 years uh, and an amazing, amazing run there. But let's go back to the beginning there. So how did you take some time off after selling that company, Idian, or did you go right into your next idea? How did you found uh, Mimecast? I'd experienced this
1: before when I left the school supplies company, sort of almost stepping into what I call the void you don't know what you're going to do. You don't, you know, but you know, you're going to have to reinvent yourself somewhat because it's not, especially as an entrepreneur, it's not like as easy as saying, okay, well, I'm, I'm an accountant. I just need to go get my next, my next job at a, at a company that's hiring accountants. So there's a lot more unknown. Um, and fortunately financial flexibility to, to sort of give it time and space. I honestly probably spent about a year bumbling around, um, with all sorts of stuff. I mean, you know, trying to figure out, am I, should I do something in, in South African wine? Should I do something with with African art? Uh, should I do something with software? And you eventually realize, look, like I'm a tech guy now, so, so it's software. And I initially found a, a couple of South African software products and I thought, maybe I can go and set up sales channels and partner relationships in Europe for these companies. And so, I struck some relationships, and I used my own capital to go and pursue those things, and thought well naively perhaps thought i 'll negotiate you know a stake or the right deal once i 've proven that I like them, and they like me. But I figured out after having moved my family to the u k on this project um, that this was actually quite a bad business model and and the margins were slim, and we were beholden to other people, and they didn 't really get europe and you know, So it got a little bit uncomfortable. But the bright side of it is I met my co-founder, Neil Murray, who's also originally South African. We'd never met in South Africa before, but we met in the UK um, through one of these projects. And Neil and I really hit it off well. And, and, and he had had a similar experience building and selling a tech company in the 90s in South Africa. Between us, we had experience and financial flexibility and we put the ideas together for mimecast we we really we were both quite close to email we we'd understood that it was growing in its importance but also growing in its in its risk profile and that there was a lot of complexity that organizations were facing in in order to have to deliver a business class of email service that was safe compliant reliable we set out to build a suite that could be the ultimate companion to a corporate mail system and deliver all of the ancillary services like spam filtering and encryption, malware, uh, high availability and archiving and backup and e-discovery capabilities. So a lot of code, a lot of building, but we, we, we had, some I think, some pretty good early foundational thoughts around the architecture of this being a multi-tenant cloud-based platform and the business model that we could build on that so so that's how we started that journey
0: multi-tenant cloud architecture in 2003
1: yeah well you know it it seems like it was early we kind of thought it was late because salesforce was sort of evangelizing this as if it was the only way to do things and we we bought into that idea but we didn't yeah we didn't actually realize that that it would take a lot longer for a lot of other established companies to ever get there um and some never would yeah
0: yeah. And my, my impression, having known you a little while, is that it started off more on managing email, but it's really morphed into security being a much more important part of the value prop. Or is that, a, do I have that right in terms of the 20-year arc of the company?
1: Yeah, yeah. to some extent. I mean, the, the products that we built on day one are still the products we sell today at, at the core. But but obviously we have added more to it as well. But the core idea of 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 examining and in- interrogating messages that typically come from the outside, but frankly, you know, maybe heading outside or maybe moving around internally, interrogating those messages for risk. And that risk could be, you know, they may be phishing emails may be social engineering, there may be inappropriate content, but interrogating content before it lands up in the mailbox. Um, and then making policy decisions about, about what should happen to those messages. Um, that, that was at the core. And then, of course, archiving and storing and building a long, big database of the corporate memory of a company um, as, as it's playing out every second of the day through, through these communication channels. So that, But, of course, the use case around security really started to hot, hot up in probably 2013. That became a big, big draw card. And so we really started to position the company you know, even more around around the security use case, and you know, we leaned in and we did some more acquisitions around that and, and built that into the platform too. Yeah,
0: yeah. And today, you guys, I want to go back on the timeline, but just you're getting to where you're at today and that emphasis. But you have over 2,000 people on the team, over 40,000 customers, offices in Boston and DC, Sweden, London, Singapore. I mean it's a it's a large operation that you guys are running but maybe taking a step back um you guys founded the company and maybe we can just do a quick timeline of how you got to where you are today and then I'd love to get into a couple lessons learned from that from that journey that you've been on but the timeline you guys must have at some point accepted some funding maybe was that a seminal part after founding it
1: it it, it was so I think we were really like businesses that are going to take on and and try and redefine a space Often are, are, are advantaged if they have a decent gestation period, and and the one thing that can be the enemy of a gestation period is is, is venture capital, because it, it it starts a biological clock ticking, and you don't it's not particularly loud in the early runnings, but but the one thing we we have so fortunate in retrospect was that we could literally spend the first few years self-funded, in our own obscurity figuring out what like true north was for the for the business, figuring out technology, figuring out a whole bunch of stuff, and bear in mind, we had no credibility. I mean we were South Africans who showed up in London uh, I mean I don't think anyone had credibility in the in the software internet space in two thousand and three anyway, following the the crash um, the bubble bursting but but that was really really useful and to have sort of wives that were patient and allowed us to spend all of our families money on this venture. But then we started to attract angel investors, so friends and family. Um, and actually, we we employed a um, a slightly unusual funding model where we built out a network of about 40 or 50 individual angels, um, some high net worth individuals, some were sort of a mate to who earned a bonus working in the city of London and you know put 25 grand into the business. But over a period of several years, we probably raised about 9 or $10 million through, through that in these kind of just-in-time funding rounds. Um, and it was, quite, it was quite creative and advantageous, combined with the fact that our subscription customers paid us annually in advance for the most part. So this allowed us to create cash flows because building a subscription business, I mean, Gail Goodman does this sort of the SaaS death ramp uh, presentation, you know, the, the, the former CEO of, of uh, Constant Contact managing that cash flow and feeding in the funding um, it just takes time it's just a function of time there isn't no, a i mean there are ways to speed it up but it, not to change the physics of it yeah. yeah and then eventually we got to about 2008 we were hell bent on on angel funding and and a lot of this did come down to some of the tough lessons i'd learned early on about about how people can get wrong headed in you know my my Co-founder in the, the very first the um, school supplies company, so we didn't want to go paint a picture for professional investors and them to have that kind of leverage over us. Because frankly, we we didn't know what what we felt we needed to control the destiny of this business to navigate somewhere good. But in about 2008, uh, we were approached by a venture capital firm that was actually just raised their very first funding round, and we were investment number one, and they. Well, they wanted to invest um, and we said, well, we're only doing angel rounds and, and, and we don't, don't want a VC term sheet. They said, well, show us the term sheet the angels invested. In. We said, sure, here it is. And they said, okay, we're going to model something based on this for you. And if you like it, maybe we can get involved. And and they did. They, they adjusted it. They said there will be a couple of things we've got to have in there that are provisions for the fact that we're managing other people's money. But but they came to the party and they offered us $2 million pounds um, at the time. And we said, thank you. We'll take one and let's, let's see how this goes. Um, and that obviously started because, you know, you, you always think I, I always felt like initially take raising money from other people means you somehow failed in the business. And obviously that's not true, but it was like this old fashioned orientation, like because I'd built a professional services company before we never needed, you know, much external capital at all sort of self-perpetuate. Then in 2009, we had some pretty serious venture capital firms show up with 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 real interest in term sheets, and we ended up doing a, a $21 million raise with, with index ventures in 2009. Then the story evolves because they were, hey, Peter, maybe you should move to the States. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And
1: uh, I was like, well, I don't know, that
0: wasn't really my plan. And
1: they were like, I, we think it should be. Um, were you
0: seeing revenue here? Was a business shifting from a revenue perspective?
1: Yeah, it was starting. I mean, look, expanding to the States is a difficult thing for, for European companies. But the one thing we, we knew to do was not to try and do continental Europe and the States at the same time. So we said, we're a British company. We've got to have a strong base there. We can't sustain like trying to do two Let's go to the US. And we're glad we did because like you remember 08, 09 or 07, 08, the world turned to a little bit of a nightmare and Europe was in a
0: bad shape. I deal with this. You know, my company is founded in, in Madrid and I think it's like 10 times easier for us to go across American states than to France or to Germany, right? Even though we're, the company is originally founded in Madrid, it's still not easy over there. I've had a lot of discussions with some of my... Yeah,
1: it's bizarre. Who, who knew? Anyway, the U.S., big, homogenous market. But we came here in 2008. But we we were a little company. We were probably 40 people in, in the U.K. And we sent like seven of our experienced people and knew the business. We shipped them over here with, I think, relocation allowances ranging from about $2,000 to about $5,000. You know, if you were a family of five, you'd get $5,000. <laughs> so it was pretty spartan. Spartan living, and we had this little windowless office here in Newton, in a Regis building, um, and we'd started the journey, and, and that that was tough. But we had we had great determined people to to try and scrap it out, and there was this one scary point where we'd actually spent more on on recruitment fees for staff that had failed and left us than we'd generated any revenue on the side. I remember doing that math, be like, how can this be? <laughs> this isn't smart. But we muscled through. So we we actually had started to get some some good traction. And we knew that we needed to invest more in the US. Um, I, I was under pressure to move here. We moved, the, uh, my family moved here, middle of 2011. and And again, obviously, retrospectively, it was a great thing. In 2012, we had a lot of growth equity firms notice us. I don't think we realized how good a business model we had in terms of like, the metrics the core when metrics you're on the
0: inside it's hard it's it's just a slog yeah and also there wasn't as much
1: like study of saas companies and saas models that had happened i mean then you know eventually you got all these saas geniuses with their metrics and clever numbers and ways to measure and grr and net revenue retention and like all this stuff like we just had stellar metrics and we didn't really know how to boast about them but but the smart money found us and they were like hmm okay let's let's support these guys growth even further so inside venture partners um came in it was i think a 62 million dollar raise um some was secondary which 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 helped because we had a lot of people who've been working on the smell of an oil rag for many years
0: get people some liquidity for people who are listening secondaries are a way of getting other you know shareholders to sh- sell their shares to the new investors and get liquid yeah which
1: obviously with with in retrospect, it was an awful idea. It was the most expensive selling of shares I've probably ever had done. Um, <laughs> but, but that's, you know, that's a high class
0: problem. High um, class problem, no sympathy.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then we grew the company. Well, I mean, we had some tricky stuff to work out as a business and who are we and what's our focus. 2014, we had some complex board dynamics to work through the controlling um, shares and Positions that my co-founder and I had, had had entrenched, you know, probably came in handy to help balance the ship and and keep us from taking shortcuts that some stakeholders might have have pushed for at the time. But we got through all of that. Um, we worked together, and we took the company public in 2015.
0: Amazing. What was it like? What was the IPO like? Was that was that as as great a moment as as one thinks when you're ringing the bell?
1: Yeah, you know, I. I'd always been like a little puzzled by this American businessman, business person fascination with taking a company public. Like, you always hear about ah, you know, IPO, and I was like, that just doesn't seem like it's appealing to me at all. Um, And probably why my 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 venture partners got a, a little bit frustrated with me in 2014, as I wasn't, you know, as driven to realize the liquidity event for them as I ought to have been, but having done it, now I get it. Like, it is a euphoric moment. Uh, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure there are companies that do it. And we're like, damn, why did we do this? Maybe some SPAC artists or something bamboozled somebody into into going into the public markets prematurely, and they shouldn't have. But but for us, we worked really, really hard. And, and for all of our staff internationally to see us on that stage, uh, you know, and NASDAQ, it's a big deal, like internationally, it's a big deal in the States. But you know, we have a big staff complement in South Africa, Australia, UK, other parts of the world. Like for them to see us go through that and to see that recognition, it was it was amazing. It was it was far more euphoric than I ever um, imagined it would be. And then what followed was six and a half years of extremely hard work.
0: Yeah, it's a commitment. Yeah, how did you manage that in your brain? Did you realize when you went IPO that it's at least well, how do you think of at least a three to five year commitment? Is that how you were thinking about it?
1: I don't know. I, I, I'm a bit of a strange one in that I don't, I, I never timeline things. Like I know there will be milestones. It's just an ongoing journey. So there's no finish line and you want the company to just be able to keep growing and, and sort of perpetuate itself. And I just knew that it was going to be many more quarters ongoing. And I don't know, I don't invent how the the whole thing's going to turn out. So we just we just kept going. Now, obviously, maybe with more experience, now I'm more aware of what the paths can be when we'd maybe start designing certain outcomes. Or, but it was just this belief that my co-founder and I always had from the beginning, which he he'd always say, "Success will bring many options." He had a few sayings that were, you know, and despite his ability to mock fortune cookie advice, he had he had some good ones of his own. Like, "Success will
0: bring many options," and "Action kills fear." <laughs> I, I I like the second one, especially. That, I think that, that speaks to, you know, Monday mornings just going, right? But in the end, you guys you guys uh, also took the company private, like you said, about six years later to Primera. And um, I'm curious, we could talk about going private, but also, do you think in the end that being a public company is a better mechanism for running a company than being private? Or did you develop a preference? Uh, I mean, because I was briefly at you know, logged me in and then we took it private as well. And um, I wasn't the CEO, I was the number two guy there, but it was um it's pretty draining being a public company in terms of the obligations and the pressure it put and and uh, it felt sometimes more short short sighted, short term oriented. So definitely I didn't walk away from that going it's a slam dunk better place to be. I, I agree the euphoria must have been incredible, but then you're on the other side and what do you think? Is it better to be public or private? Yeah, I, I think that it, and again, I only
1: have experience with one company and our company just happens to be in quite a stable, steady grower with a with a pretty pristine business model subscription. There's not a lot of hair on this thing. We've handcrafted it from the beginning. So I don't know what it would feel like to inherit complexity. And and uh, I know you guys had logged me and did some, some things where you t- took the business out of Citrix and the, the go-to business and like... Sometimes those things you don't you you don't fully understand. So we we felt like we really understood our business and, and the mechanisms of it. And obviously it it's got it moved through time and different competitive dynamics and different kind of customer requirements, but but you can keep up with it um, to some extent. So that definitely that definitely helped. Um it's different. Um we we obviously got trained, we got used to the rhythm of, you know, over over many like 26, 27 quarters of of public company life, um, it, it had its awful moments. I mean, we, we went out at ten bucks, and and within a few months, um, we were at six bucks, and our, our you know the bankers that took us uh, public, Goldman Sachs, the the lead analyst put a sell rating on us. Um, uh, which was just like awful, I was like this doesn 't make any sense with friends you know, like these who
0: need enemies, I guess is the expression, right
1: yeah, yeah, and not to take anything away from the banking work uh, that Goldman Sachs did it just didn't make a lot of sense, and we felt we felt really you know in a tough spot and um and of course, you know, six and a half years later, the, the company was acquired for eighty dollars a share, so you know we just had to we we just had to outwork the 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 critics um and, and, and demonstrate that. But the, the public company setting, I think, you know, it definitely leaves a, a sovereignty with the management team because you have multi, you know, as long as you do it right, there's a sovereignty that the management team has to design and develop the strategy. And it's, 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 liberating in, in some senses, you have to keep earning that, that freedom. And then obviously when you move into a private setting, and again, disclaimer, I only have one year. In fact, on Friday last week was the one year anniversary of our, of our deal closing you know, being the CEO of a, of a private equity held company, it's much more of a team sport. And I don't mean
0: like... With the shareholder, with the investor. Correct. Yeah. In yeah. fact,
1: being the CEO is a, is much more of a team sport. So I, I had more sovereignty as CEO of a public company because
0: it, all roads led to me. You had a, a million shareholders. So no, no one of them could tell you what to do. But now you have a...
1: Exactly. The board led to me. The management team led to me. Now... The office of the CEO is essentially a jointly owned concept. Um, And I'm not uncomfortable with that concept because, as a founder, I've been here for a long time. I know where the bodies are buried. I've seen a lot of things, but, and I know I don't have all the answers, but it does mean there's like, there can be quite a few balls in the air. And you have to be able to bring that together strategically in a way that accommodates a lot more points of view and aligns a lot more things. Um, and your your authority, while it's respected by the private equity firm, all the other players in the system know that it's shared authority. It's different. Um, yeah. And again, I only have one private equity partner here in Pamira and no experience with others. But I, I think it's actually quite a good model for achieving transformational growth in a business. Um, there's a lot of decision making can be Done on a shortcut basis there's you can be a lot more confident about about certain things whereas in a public company you, you know that whatever you might decide you're never going to have a consensus out there you have to just show the facets of what you're doing to a lot of different stakeholders and and hope they hang on
0: so peter i want to just go to 20 years of running mindcast through everything that you've described to the listeners on the podcast here just lessons learned. Um, you know, how, how did you keep the energy for, for 20 years? Uh, just curious your thoughts on, on kind of that aspect.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, if you work in a space as, as, as exhilarating as email, like, it's, <laughs> it's, it's uh, so it is like, what's the mindset that gives you stamina through multiple cycles of change? I always come back to this point. It's, it's perspective and imagination. So I've used this example before. It's like you wake up today and you go, I, I don't know if I'm at the start, the middle, or the end of this journey. I, I genuinely don't know. And I mean, you could be in year two as a company. You could be in year 22 as a company. I mean, look at, I don't know, what's a very old company. I mean, like 20 years in, where were they? Start, middle, or end of their journey. I mean, um, you don't know. But it's always better to assume you're at the start.
0: (laughs) Um. This really resonates because I do think for me in my role, that's exactly true. I have no idea how long the journey is.
1: Yeah. You don't know. You can't control it. So you go, okay, well, if I were to pick a point, what's going to be the most high-functioning mindset to show up with for the team, for my stakeholders, for myself? Um, And so you say... At the start of the journey, I'm most open to learning. I'm most open to fresh thinking. I'm most energetic. So let's lock into that start of the journey mindset, and then, and then, how do I use my imagination to, to think about if I was, if I had to, think about the future with fresh eyes? You know, what would somebody new? You know, maybe at year fifteen, I've got to think like, if I got hit by the bus and someone new came in here tomorrow what would they make sure they fixed? Or what would they prioritize? Or, or like, what would I really wish they would know so they could go and like get after? And then you start to put that together. Um, and then also realizing that, and I hate this because I wish everyone would stay forever in the company. I'm kind of loyal like that. But but sometimes you need fresh legs and not everybody is a is a long distance athlete. Some people want to, be around for a shorter period of time or, or their, their imagination won't refresh because they're not able to go back to to be start of journey people again and again. And so knowing that fresh energy in terms of fresh legs coming into the business and, and the bigger you get, sometimes you have more optionality to attract more talent, diverse talent to come into the, into the company. Um, that gives me a boost too. It's fun working with new engaged people that bring experience and and as long as they have the same values and an approach to to work,
0: um, that that keeps it going. And you never doubted your leg stamina. You never thought, you know, maybe for this next chapter, I should hand off.
1: Well, you know, you confronted with that uh, that idea um, quite quite often. I mean, even like in the early days before what well, you know, we turned down some some term sheets from venture capitals before Dawn Capital came in, where they'd literally in the in the term sheet the they made it very clear that they wanted the ability to bump you to one side because they believe they knew better. And, and, and I always felt that didn't make sense to me because like, I have started this company, I've attracted other capital here. I've brought people in, like I'd be doing the wrong thing by everybody. If I signed an agreement with one new party here, which said, well, you can write me out of the script at any time because like, what are they going to do? That's going to meet all these obligations to all these customers, and like, no, they're going to look after their business, not our business in particular. So I, I hold on to that as a matter of of obligation to stakeholders. But but I think it, it's important that that people know who's in charge. But it doesn't mean it didn't come without self doubt, and and that self doubt can be encouraged by others who want to take control of the business. It can be it can be encouraged by just you know. Being human and realizing that you've screwed up a few things and and you don't know if you can fix them,
0: it can also be a great motivator. It can be, yeah, it
1: absolutely can be. I remember one moment. Uh, 2014 was a tough year. It was the year before we went we went public, and and there was plenty of self doubt. <clears throat> and I remember meeting meeting an investment banker who had quite a lot of of operator experience himself. And and I, I and I said to him, you know, I really don't think. Um, his name was Michael. I said to him, I I really don't, I don't, I don't know if I'm the person that can take this company public. I don't know if I'm, I'm capable of, of, of leading it. And he, he'd gotten to know me a little bit and he, he looked at me and he said, no, I've, I've met plenty of people who've taken companies public. Trust me. Like if anyone can do it, you, you can, you can take your company public. He said, the only question is, are you willing to make the personal sacrifices that'll be necessary? Like, do you really want to do it? And if you are, you can do it. Um, and I remember going home um, and having this conversation with my wife and she'd known like how tumultuous 2014 had been. And I told her that, is, that story and she just burst into tears and hugged me. And it was like this sort of moment in my career, which you know was then a turning point. But yeah, I was like, "Damn it, we'll do this."
0: You talked to me as well about kind of dividing things up. I uh, know we'll wrap up, but dividing things up into the journey into chapters and eras. How did you? How do you do that? Because I think that's something I also sort of struggle with. You see natural moments where you know you're kind of transitioning to the next thing, and how do you how do you get the the organization behind that? Yeah, that's so important because like life's a long
1: story, and 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 like sentences need punctuation, and they need like. People need to have a sense of time, and how do you think about time? it's interesting. We had an exec offsite last week, and we were talking about this idea that when we're having conversations, we need to we need to think about two dimensions. The one is what is the time frame that we're thinking about, like where are we, and then also like what altitude are we? Are we having a ten thousand foot conversation about some ideas, or are we going way down? And just just maintaining a sense of what we're talking about is this is this this quarter, next quarter, is this a three-year concept, and, and so on. And so what, what I've tried to do is, is, help, is help the company think about that um, more clearly and kind of break the story. Now, now a few years back, we, we, we wrote this thing called the Mimecast story, and we had these four chapters, and it was like, you know, chapter one was going back a little bit, chapter two was the present day, chapter three was where we were headed, and then chapter four was sort of out of the possible five, ten-year, story and, and we try and write those stories like descriptive, like a storybook, like, and you might have ideas in there, like over here, we think our revenues might be, you know, 200 million or whatever. Uh, And we think the product's this and, you use techniques like, you know, a customer testimonial might read something like this and you put it in there. So you give people a sense of it. But what I found now is particularly where we are at Mimecast today it's actually quite an interesting point. So we're now going into our third decade and I use that to give people a sense of what do we need to get right for our third decade? What do we need to bring with us that has been part of our success formula over the last two, but also what's the new thinking? What's the fresh thinking and being able to frame it like the start of a new era. Um, it's that start of journey mindset, which, you know, um, I think it's empowering for people, and particularly because there's new people who have joined the company, and for them to feel a sense that they're coming in at the ground level, the start of the third decade, it's a, it's an exciting an exciting point, and there's a platform here to work with, but it's it's a new
0: day as well. That's awesome. Well, Peter, I, I, we could keep going for a long time. I think I should wrap it up with the thought of those chapters, and uh, I'm sure there's an amazing third decade of Mimecast that we're all going to follow. Thanks a ton for making the time to get into all these details of your background and your growing up in South Africa and uh, 20 years there and beyond. So appreciate you spending the time with me.
1: Yeah, thank you, Mark.
0: Uh, And for all of our listeners, keep tuning in for the next episode of Cyber CEOs Decoded. And thanks for uh, listening to Peter and I banter on today.